You're listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide, where therapists live, breathe, and practice as human beings. It's time to reimagine therapy and what it means to be a therapist. We are human beings who can now present ourselves as whole people with authenticity, purpose, and connection, especially now when therapists must develop a personal brand to market their practices. To support you as a whole person and a therapist, here are your hosts, Kurt Widhelm and Katie Vernoy. Welcome back to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. I'm Kurt Widhelm with Katie Vernoy, and today we want to get into specialization. What does it mean to be a specialist? How do we hold ourselves out as experts and some of the liabilities that can come along with this? When you were talking about the differences between a specialist and all the other pieces, I think this is something that I kind of need to learn a little bit about too, Kurt. I'm glad that we're bringing this up because for me, I was looking at specialists as focusing my attention on types of training and really learning a lot about a particular clinical area, not that I was holding myself out as a specialist or as an expert in doing so. Talk to me a little bit about the specialist, kind of what it connotes to say that I'm a specialist. So I think that this starts with a lot of advice that's given back when people are in graduate school about when you're developing a practice, you want to specialize, specialize, specialize. And I think that there's a couple of components to this. One is definitely on the marketing side to Mm -hmm. reach a very specific population or group of people. And the other is kind of the education side and the services that you can provide along with it. Now, marketing, the general public is generally going to say, I want to work with somebody who knows about my particular issues. And that's Mm -hmm. how a lot of us build our practices. And it's very wonderful for us to have kind of a shorthand to be able to use with those clients based on our experience. The training side is where people can get tripped up on this. And I'm basing this on some of the writings and teachings of Richard Leslie, who's currently a lawyer with CPH Insurance. And we'll link the article that I'm referring to in the show notes. But he goes on to talk about that when you call yourself a specialist or an expert in something, by doing so holds you to a higher standard of care than a general clinician is going to be held to. So if you are saying that you specialize in eating disorders, that denotes to the public that you have a higher or a specialized training that is above and beyond what other therapists would generally be expected to know about eating disorders. How do you determine what level of training is actually, or what level of knowledge is higher than the general population? Because I think, especially with your example of eating disorders, I feel like I've had some training, it's related field to my area of focus, I won't call it specialty, but focus of trauma. And so I feel like I know some, but definitely people who have had more training than me, which is the general trainings that some of us get. I feel like what keeps you from being a specialist in eating disorders, Kurt, because I feel like you've had specific training to learn about eating disorders. You work well with eating disorders, and I'm not sure why that keeps you from being a specialist. So what Richard says is that you should be able to back up the trainings that you are claiming to have as a specialist. So this means that you should be able to point out to something on your resume that says, I worked three years in this treatment house under this model. I've been to International Association of Eating Disorder Professionals and gone through their program. I'm a certified eating disorder specialist through this rigorous training that gets to a certain level of performance by other people who have that kind of background and are able to determine that, yes, you are way beyond what the general clinician is going to be expected to have. 
I do work with people with eating disorders. I don't say that I specialize in eating disorders. I don't feel that I have the depth and breadth of experience of working in really high levels of care with eating disordered clients. I don't think that I have, well, I do have a number of trainings on working with eating disorders that I've gone to. I have great treatment team professionals that I do work with. I don't think that I can put myself out there at a level that says, yes, this is a bread and butter. I am able to offer you something that most other clinicians in my area are not able to provide to you. I consider myself competent in this area, but that's not something that I'm going to write on my business cards when I'm handing them out <laughs> to people. It's like, you know, Kurt's pretty competent about a number of different things that mm-hmm. where I do consider my specialties is EMDR, is mm-hmm. working with self-harm, is working with adolescents. These mm-hmm. are things that I have either a number of years of working with in my clinical practice or am working towards certifications to be able to put a stamp out there that says, yes, the organization MDRIA says that I have done enough training to be considered certified in this area. I can call myself a specialist here. Okay. I see what you're saying. I guess for me, there are so many areas to be competent in. So maybe that's the word that, you know, when we're looking at scope of practice and how we put ourselves out there, maybe it's really looking at what areas are we competent in, which is not sexy marketing language, of course. And then also what are the things that we've gone deeper into? And those are the things that we're specialists in where we can potentially provide certifications or or proof of experience. I guess it feels really hard to describe to the public when we have an area of competence that not everybody has, how do we really put that out there without saying that we're specialists? Because I think that's really what the consumers are looking at. They see generalists, which are the people who work with, you know, run-of-the-mill anxiety and depression, you know, or like the general practitioners in a medical practice. And then there's those of us, like, I see myself as competent to treat trauma, but I don't have EMDR certification. You know, there's not these other pieces. I have a lot of experience and training, but I don't know that I would necessarily, because I don't have the certifications, because, you know, I'm more of a talk therapist, trauma therapist, that without having those certifications, I feel a little bit wary given the definition you've provided to call myself a specialist. How do I signify that to the public without stepping across the line because I think calling myself competent, like you said, isn't that exciting saying I treat that. Okay. Well, I think people will get that, but anybody can treat trauma. Like how do I show that? Hey, I've got some good training in it, but I'm not an expert. We have an ethical imperative. This is part of all of the ethics codes that we represent our trainings accurately. Mm -hmm. So this is where some people do get in trouble with this, especially early in their career, early launching their practices is you're trying to stand out against a potentially crowded marketplace. You know, my office suite holds probably three dozen therapists between all of us who (laughs) kind of timeshare the different offices within the suite. My building has several hundred therapists in it. Oh my gosh. There's a lot of competition. There's a lot (laughs) of reason to really try and put yourself out there as trying to reach a target market or differentiate yourself from everybody else. The reason that this is so risky is because If everybody can kind of do that, you're holding yourself out that you can have a higher standard of care. And if you Mm -hmm. can't back that up, you're not only holding yourself to that higher standard of care, but you're violating some of the ethics that says you have to accurately portray what you've actually been trained in. 
so I think that there's a lot of people who are saying, I specialize in working with a particular population when what they mean is, I intend to get training that would allow me to call myself a specialist in this area. <laughs> so what word can we use? I think that this is where you can back off a little bit. I focus in working with small children. I have a target niche of housewives with Z codes. I <laughs> <laughs> Only therapists will get what you're talking about there, Kurt. <laughs> so it's not good marketing language is what I'm saying. <laughs> it, my practice focus is in eating disorders or my practice focus is in anxiety. Or, I mean, I guess you can even just say I work with and kind of specify what those are. But I guess for me, I think it's hard because I don't know that there's really super clear standards of when you have a clinical focus and when you've become a specialist. I think, and I think that the reason I'm harping on this a little bit is I think that there are training facilities and people who have monetized that effort by having all these certifications that people can get. And I don't know kind of how well those are overseen or regulated. And so, you know, there's a lot of therapists who are paying for tons and tons of certifications to be able to, I guess, to call themselves specialists. Certainly EMDR and Imdria, like those are things where it feels like that's pretty legit, pretty mainstream as far as certifications goes. But there's a lot of different ways that people can get certified and have something. And it's like, hey, I went to a training, I paid some money and they gave me a certificate. So what actually is solid and concrete right now? Because I, I don't want to just say like, hey, everybody go get certifications and start feeling the coffers of all these evidence-based practices or all these people who are just trying to feed into this need, this ethical, legal and ethical need, but also the fear that therapists are that they aren't good enough. So what's concrete? So one of my hobbies, I guess you would call it, is I am a, according to the California Board of Behavioral Sciences, I'm a subject matter expert in law and ethics. And even that sounds like a very, very daunting title. And, you know, several times a year I'm up in Sacramento and I'm pouring through the business and professions codes that govern my license and some of the related licenses to us. And this does allow for me to say, yes, I do this. I do this consistently. I'm well versed in a lot of the laws and ethics that govern our profession. I interact with a lot of lawyers through who are focused on our profession and, well, I'm not a lawyer, and I throw that caveat out there quite a bit. I'm mm -hmm. not a lawyer, but here's my expertise in this. Here's my pieces of paper backing me up in this. So when I say the interpretation of the law is this, there's some evidence behind it. Mm -hmm. So to answer your question, these certifications are only as good as the general profession accepts them. The, okay. the standard of care is... All of us who practice mental health, if we recognize that as, okay, that's a legitimate type certification, you bring up EMDR, DBT, these types of things, mm -hmm. your general practitioner is going to say, yes, we, we can stand behind that type of certification. Now, if Joe Therapist is creating a certification working with therapy dogs who have two different colored eyes... Um, <laughs> The general practitioner is not going to say that's a legitimate certification process. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So kind of what we look at in looking at standards of care is the standard of care is everybody seeing that as a higher standard of care. 
Okay. I see what you're saying. I think that there's still a little bit like if everybody thinks it's good, then it's okay. And and that makes it hard when you're newer in the profession to determine what are the really good certifications unless your provisor or your school can give you some guidance on that. But I think for me, if as a consumer, I don't know that I would be able to distinguish between the different types of certification, you know, Joe therapist and multicolored eyes therapy dogs versus a certification in how to incorporate equine therapy or something like that. Like I think it's something where I don't know that there's a clear consumer protection that seems really obvious here. So there's that piece. And then the other piece is I've seen so many therapists who put off really digging into private practice or into pursuing the type of therapy they want to do because they're waiting until they've got certifications and training that back them up. And that concerns me because I think that there's this self-doubt and all of that that goes into a lot of therapists where they don't claim their competence even until they've got a lot of certifications stacked up. For me, the way I was talking about it before our conversation today was, you know, figure out where you want to specialize and start digging into those trainings and focus that so you can focus your attention so you don't feel like you have to have like all of these certifications to be a good therapist. But I feel like it gets hard because I think that training is good. I think we should do training, but I think having this notion that there's got to be some sort of piece of paper that says we're good enough. I get worried about that. I think that there's some positives there, but I also get worried that therapists will continue to have a difficult time getting started with real clinical practice. I've got a couple of points that I want to bring up on this. One is that the standard of care for the field can change. And so it it can change the value of what some of these certifications are really looking at. An example right now is looking at the CSAT certification, the Certified Sex Addiction Therapist. And there's Mm -hmm. a ton of controversy surrounding this right now as to whether or not a behavioral process like that truly stands up to an addiction. Mm-hmm. And there's some very highly respected people and even some people that I would consider friends who not only hold CSATs, but are very prominent people within mm-hmm. that community. And they're generating more and more controversy with people who do not view these particular set of behaviors as an addiction. Mm-hmm. And I've got friends on both sides. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the standards of care can change on this. The other thing that you're bringing up is that for people who want to pursue a lot of these certifications, I don't know that necessarily the piece of paper means anything. And I've got kind of two different examples on this. Mm -hmm. One is, as I've talked about on the show quite a bit, I'm actually pursuing EMDR certification right now. In this process, what I've kind of come to the realization of is that I'm not doing it for the purpose of being called certified at this point, that EMDR is something that I'm very, very passionate about. It's something that I have sought a number of advanced trainings in, but having the certification in and of itself is a piece of paper that's kind of just something that I'm going to accumulate into something that I'm passionate about and I'm learning about a lot anyway. Mm -hmm. So I would say that even though I don't have the certification, I do have the trainings to where I could be held to a higher standard of care and to be able Mm -hmm. to call myself a specialist because I have tons of EMDR-related continuing education right now that I can back this up with. Mm -hmm. Now, just through different marketing events and conferences that I attend to in relation to different things that I do, I found this out a couple of years ago when I was applying for a different expertise sort of position within the Board of Behavioral Sciences. I had to list all of the CEU courses that I'd taken over the last four years. 
And I had surprisingly like hundreds of CEUs in doing couples work. Mm. And there were two CEUs here, three CEUs there that came up around doing marriage work. Hmm. And I cannot do couples work. It's just, it's something (laughs) that I don't have the capacity to really do marriage work. My preference is to work individually. My preference is to work with families, but you you put me in a room with two people and I am not the best therapist in that situation. Mm -hmm. But I have enough continuing education that I could really put myself out there as Yes, I have hundreds of hours of CEUs and working with couples. So part of this is really owning what you are capable of in the room. Mm-hmm. And that to me speaks more to the way that I look at specialization, niche, target market. I think really identifying who you work best with and getting more and more training so that you can work with them better. And it also helps for marketing because you can say who you work with more specifically and people know how to refer. So to me, I like that piece of it a lot because I think too often folks will kind of float around and not really be clear on who they work with. They take a lot of different trainings. And so they stay at that generalist level and then potentially try to call themselves a specialist when they decide what they want to work with and they can't back it up with the training. And so I think as soon as someone's able to really identify where they would like to specialize, being able to have some deeper training is really positive from a clinical aspect. It helps them to get to the point where they can actually call themselves a specialist and it's easier for them to market because there's a specific type of client that they're looking for and people will remember them better for that. But yeah, I get worried about all the certifications. I feel like, like you said, there's controversy over some of it. You can get a certification in something that people don't believe in anymore. I mean, I think it's something where being really thoughtful and staying up to date with how your specialty or how your area of clinical interest continues to evolve, because I think it can be constantly shifting because clinical Research is continuing to happen. People are developing new ways to talk about therapy and and putting those together. I think it's important to recognize that there's ramifications to calling yourself a specialist for sure. Yeah, there really is. And if it helps to maybe clarify this a little bit is think about if you were going to pursue medical treatment, Mm -hmm. what would you want out of somebody who's a specialist? You would want somebody who's got a very robust experience in working with a particular issue. Mm -hmm. You want them to have probably a couple of years, if not several years of experience working with that particular issue. You don't want somebody who's been specializing in something for like three months. It's even kind of looking at things like, I want somebody who's a well-known, renowned specialist who's been working with a population for 20 plus years, and I want them to be an expert in this brand new technology that's associated with it. (laughs) So, you know, generally the only people who you could really say are specialists in the brand new technology are the people who invented the technology. Mm. That there does need to be a robust experience behind being able to use something before you can say, I am a specialist with this Mm -hmm. particular tool. Yeah, that makes sense. I agree. I think it's something where it comes down to semantics, I think, and in some ways for when you're trying to market yourself, when you've got a clinical focus to your practice, I think the point is well made that calling yourself a specialist really requires a robust level of experience. I don't want that to hold people back from really choosing a specialization that they continue to work towards and to really have clinical focuses because I see too many people who 
aren't necessarily generalists, but they don't have enough of a specialization to get a depth that will really serve their clients well. And I think for me, my hope is that people are really digging deep and learning really, really high quality clinical care for the people with whom they work best. And this is where, as far as practice building goes, the more that you research, and a really good way to make yourself research is to write blogs or write newsletters about Mm -hmm. things, that forces you into looking at what other experts have done in that area. So that way you're incorporating things that the experts are already doing. Even, for example, in this episode, even though I do have a vast knowledge of a lot of the laws surrounding the ethics even, Mm -hmm. I'm still pointing to my experience of being a subject matter expert with the BBS. I'm still citing Mm -hmm. Richard Wesley. This is not something that I'm going to on my own. Mm -hmm. That's that same sort of ethics of here's the background for what I'm pulling from. Mm -hmm. And so a way of getting there within your practice, within your specialization building process Mm -hmm. is Go and give topics. You can't call yourself necessarily a specialist yet if you want to go to a school and talk about parenting. But you can say one of the areas of my practice is parenting. (laughs) I work with parents. I work with parents. I work on parenting issues. The more of those presentations that you give, the more of those articles that you write builds this catalog of the standard of care and how you exceed it. And I think that's the big takeaway is As therapists, when we get our licenses, when we graduate with our degrees, we have a good wealth of knowledge about a lot of different things, but the depth in one area potentially isn't deep enough to call ourselves specialists yet. We have to develop that. We have to continue to learn. We have to focus our continuing education, potentially get certifications if they're legit, (laughs) but we need to do more work once we've graduated and gotten our licenses. That's not sufficient to call ourselves a specialist necessarily. We need to have some deeper education, training experience to really call ourselves a specialist so that we can differentiate the level of care. So check out our show notes to check out Richard Leslie's article and some of the other things that we're referring to in our show today. You can find that at mtsgpodcast.com. While you're there, you can check out our law and ethics workshop that we're putting on in May, the brand of you and our conference that's coming up in October, the therapy reimagined conference, where we're going to dive into a lot more of this theory of the therapist type ideas. So until next time, I'm Kurt Woodhelm with Katie Vernoy. Thank you for listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. Learn more about who we are and what we do at mtsgpodcast.com. You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes. 